0: We're in a series on possessions, on money, uh, material. What the material means for us in this uh, spiritual life. Uh, the subject of this morning is tomorrow. How does uh, how does money in our hand today affect the way we view tomorrow? And I want to. Uh, right off the bat, just encourage you, um, this, this, is a, this Sunday is a most dangerous Sunday, so I'll get myself in trouble today, uh, and uh, you could too. Uh, so what I want to encourage you to do is as you're inclined to think about some of the things like retirement we're going to talk about, ask your questions for yourself, okay, not the someone else. we just terrible question askers for someone else. So really work to keep it in your circle, in like the circle of you and your family. Also, as you reflect on ideas, it's my experience that different socioeconomic levels have to reinvent how to answer these things. I'm saying one answer doesn't come across, you know, someone could say, well, I just buy everything in cash. And someone who's poor could say, well, that's that's a romantic idea, you know? Um, so I ran into somebody at uh, a friend of mine down at Loma Coffee. Uh, he worked there for a while, and uh, he's of the city and uh, is, has had a broken life. And he, I remember, I caught up with him. We just ran into each other the other day, and, and uh, he, he Lord's in his life, and he's on rehab, and things are going great. And he, But he said to me, he said, I had like $200 in my pocket the other day. He said, I oh, mean, I've never had that much money in my pocket. My whole life I've never seen that much money. He's asking, he's asking and answering questions differently than I am. So uh, like keep your questions to yourself, right, and, and your reflection within your standard of living. is probably the most fruitful place to think. Or you'll get yourself in trouble before the Lord. All right, um, I wanna, uh, we're going to talk about tomorrow, and I want to describe... I want to look at the lives of my children to help us to think about that. There are in the world spenders and savers, okay? And children are great examples for this. Uh, I was a spender. I am a spender. I hope to always be a spender because I'm married to a saver. <laughs> oh, man, I, would, I, was a, I was, even just during worship, I realized, man, I was a rotten child. I stole money to spend money. That's how much I like to spend. You didn't know that. I was a spender. And many of my children can be spenders from time to time. All the passion. We have a five-day or a week-one-week week rule in our home. So every week or so, we get in the wagon and we ride into town, do MO's and Target and that sort of thing. And, and Target invariably, they see something that, oh, they just have to have. And they have, you know, a little bit of money in their pockets and they're so ready to buy whatever it is, Pokemon cards, whatever it is. It's always dumb and it's always junk. That's what catches the, the, I must have this thing now. And, and we have a one-week rule. Well, you can't get it. Get it next week. You have to wait a week. They have to make a claim of desire, and then that claim of desire has to marinate for one week and still be valid. Now, they hate us when we do this. And we, we, are, we are full up. We don't negotiate on this. We, we hold the line on this. Invariably, they owe us a... a, a thinks because once the buzz wears off once you just separate them from the need they're okay and if it holds for 7 days then maybe maybe they should get it that's that's a spender my i had one son years ago we went into Toys R Us just him and i because i am a toys r us kid I, I literally, as a child, and I'm not kidding you, I devoutly prayed that I would always be a Toys R Us kid. Like, it was a, I know the song. Uh, it mattered to me. I'm a toy person. And so I had, it was an odd occasion where I had one child with me and my son, so I took him to Toys R Us so we could look. And I said to him, hey, we're going to walk in, but we're not buying anything. Okay, no buying. We're going to walk in. Do you still want to do that? Yeah, I want to do that. So we go, and he's about four at the time, and we don't even get past the junk aisle, you know, the bargains and like the silly putty, slinky junk in the front. They're trying to, you know, when you, it's like you don't shop hungry, don't grocery shop hungry, you don't, that front aisle is just junk, and we're not even out of that, and he's pointing at stuff, and he says, oh, dad, I want that for my birthday. I want that. For my birthday. Because we can't buy it today, so he's using his birthday to talk about things. So we go about two more feet. I'm not kidding you, like two feet he was like, Oh no, I want that for my birthday. That that for my birthday. And oh, I want that for that, I want that for my birthday. And we did it about 15 times in 15 feet. He had this, I want that for my birthday. And I finally said enough already. I don't want to hear it. No more talk about your birthday. It's eight months away. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear another thing about your birthday. And he's, you know, he's looking like, like, do we need to leave? No, no. We can do this. Okay, no more talk about your birthday. And we go about three more feet. And he goes, Dad, I want that for my birthday, but we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> that is a spender, okay? He, he comes right he comes honestly from a spender. Now, then there are savers. Now, savers always think they're superior to spenders. And you may be. Okay, you may be better than us, but, and the reason you think you're superior to spenders is because you have mastered the stomach, right? You can suppress appetite. That's what, that's what a saver has on us. But you may not really be any better. It depends on your motivation for saving. If you're saving for a bigger and better toy... Well, it's still carnality at the end of the day. It's still every bit as materialistic, right? I may be constantly buying styrofoam dinghies, and you may save up and get a yacht, right? Your boat will be better than mine, but your spirit will be just as materialistic. I'll just have 30 dumb dinghies, because I can't save, and you'll have one big yacht. It's just as materialistic, okay? And that's, I see that. My, my sons have now grown into the place where now they want toys that are almost always over the horizon. They want things that are over the horizon, which forces them to suppress the appetite, which is a good discipline, an admirable discipline, but it doesn't mean they're less materialistic. Another reason people save is because what's available to them today does not excite them. There's just nothing that turns them on. Some kids save because they have everything. Parents buy them everything, so why would they ever spend money? Well, there's no virtue in that. So they have excess money and no perceived need. That's a curious one. Why are you saving? There was a Christmas I had... um, I, I, when I went through the adjustment, I was no longer a Toys R Us kid, and it was killing me. But I would look back, and I just didn't want Transformers or G.I. Joe anymore, I, I, or Legos. I, I wasn't that anymore, but I didn't like clothes, as you can tell. I, I didn't like, I'm not a fashion person. I'm not, oh, that stuff is lame to me. So I didn't want anything, and my parents, what are they going to do with Christmas? So I got 10-pound dumbbells. To add insult to injury, like though I'm not strong enough for more, and I got an empty box. That's right. It was a joke. Ha-ha! It was a red-letter Christmas. Uh, the reality was I was just in that phase where nothing, nothing su- it, you know, it, it was before the CD. There wasn't even a CD player. It was, nothing was exciting Today was not exciting to me. So I say for tomorrow. <clears throat> I want to start with wisdom. The idea of wisdom. And we'll, and we'll be in, in Proverbs. Because when it gets to the idea of money today, do I hold it, spend it today, use it today, or hold it for tomorrow, there's such an offering in this world of wisdom. Sound financial planning. Sound judgment. You know, financial, Everywhere you look, Everywhere you look, there's an advertisement beckoning you to be a disciplined, sound financial planner for the future, whether what bank it is or whatever. There's this, this language of careful, disciplined, managed wealth, delayed gratification. We, we want to pat ourselves on the back with these sorts of ideas. In other words, it has the clear semblance of wisdom, but it's completely secular. I'm not saying it's evil. I'm not even saying it's wrong. I'm just saying God not, God's not in it. Now, he may show up and say the same thing, but it's it's wisdom derived from the minds of man that is at play. And what I want to point to is, is the source of wisdom. So look with me here in Proverbs 1, verse 7. This, is, this idea is at the center of Proverbs, and certainly at the center of these early chapters. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That same chapter a little bit later in verse 28, it says, speaking of people who don't pursue the Lord, don't have a fear of the Lord, it says they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproofs. So wisdom is not the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The second chapter it says the same thing in the fourth verse, if it's talking about the pursuit of wisdom, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up wisdom for the upright, it says. The third chapter continues the same theme. If Verse five, If you trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him, then he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Wisdom is not the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I don't mean fear like timidity of, uh, before the Lord. I mean ever mindful respect of who he is in light of who you are. That's the fear of the Lord. Like the early church had this idea about the Lord. What is the revelation? What's the knowledge of God? They, would, they talked about it as the sun. They said the sun is this the source of light and truth, and it's good, and it warms us, and it feeds, right? it's the source of energy, but you can't stare at it. It's, you're, you always wince, you always duck, to look directly in the sun, but nonetheless, you know it's good and it pushes life into everything. That's a healthy fear of the Lord. Is all goodness comes from Him, and in light of Him, I'm small. I may be beautiful and wonderful and carefully made, but I'm small and He's great. That's the beginning of wisdom. You know, the man who wrote this, Solomon began brilliantly wise. Sorry, the fourth chapter of 1 Kings. No one was more wise than Solomon. Not only was he wise, but God made him wiser. So the whole world would come to sit at the feet of Solomon to hear his godly wisdom. That's 1 Kings 4. 1 Kings 11 says, Solomon did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Solomon dies a fool. He does not walk in the way of his father David. Solomon is a disappointment. Now, how did somebody who was so wise die a fool? Because he lost his fear of God. And I want to entrust to you, as we begin to try to seek the Lord's will, particularly in an area where there's so much earthly wisdom, what I want to offer is that the earthly wisdom is not wise unless it's understood beneath the fear of God. It's not wise. There's things that you could be told to do that maybe they're right, maybe they're not right. Our ability to discern the wisdom of the adage or the proverb has to do with our fear of the Lord. And that's, I want to arm us with that as we go through some of these ideas. Now, this is, I said earlier, this is certainly the most dangerous of all the messages on money. Um, And what I've opted to do is keep a point on the teaching, okay? I went round and round and said, do I try to adjust for context and make sure I'm thinking of this person and that person? And do I jump through all these hoops and... Say all these qualifiers and hug this person while you bash this person, and I just realized I was I was filing down the point of this teaching until it was a blunt instrument. So what I'm going to do is I'm not doing that. I'm just going to keep it sharp and say it and just tell you maybe it's not for you. Like allow the spirit to like hit the person next to you, impale them, okay, for their life maybe, for their health. And we feel like, like if it lands wrong on you, then it's just a little bit of collateral damage. Give me some grace. But we are purposely keeping the teaching a little bit sharp. Okay? Um, that's, that's what I want to do. Now, now there's, three, there's three areas that I want us to look at where the future and money meet. And I want to use Luke chapter 12 as, as our jump-off point for that. So if you want to turn to Luke 12, it's a fairly familiar passage. But I want to look at this as far as how we think of security. That's an that's a idea of tomorrow that money today plays a role in. I want us to look at it as how it relates to the way we rest. That's an idea of tomorrow that money today has a vote in. And I also want us to look in how we use and or abuse or waste today because of our infatuation with tomorrow. Those are the three things that I want us to look at. And this parable is a great is a jump off parable for these ideas. So let me read it. It's the Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Uh, Jesus is in a crowd, and someone asks him a question. This is what it says. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul soul you have ample goods laid up for many years relax eat drink be merry but God said to him fool this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared whose will they be so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All right, the first idea that exists at the plane of the earth is that money buys security. Now, I know we know that's not the book answer, know I know we know to reject that idea. But we certainly behave as though it does, and it does in some ways. We could at least say this money helps in setting the conditions for tomorrow. Money helps secure assurances for tomorrow. After all, isn't it wise to have a safety net under you? I appreciate it. Isn't it wise to save for a rainy day? Isn't it wise to have a reserve? You see, there's, there's plenty of wisdom out there. Uh, the question is, is it beneath the fear of the Lord? The book of Job starts this way. In the first chapter of Job, God is holding an audience. And in the audience walks the accuser, Satan. And the Lord says to Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been roaming the earth to and fro and up and down. The Lord says, Well, did you see my servant Job? There's no man like him. No one is righteous as him. And the accuser does something like this Job. (laughs) Job. You can almost feel like if Satan had pockets, it'd be. (laughs) Job's not righteous, says the accuser. Job is rich. God, not righteous. That's Job chapter one. He says, Lord, you've put a hedge around Job's family. It's what you've done. So that his possessions are secure and his security is in them. You touch, that's the word the accuser uses. God, you touch his possessions and see what happens. We'll see who this Job is. That's the dare. Now, Job is Atypical. Right? The Lord says, all right, we'll touch and see my man Job because I am always right. So Job is a, is a marvelously atypical story that beckons us to the Lord. Right? Why is Job righteous? Because despite his positions, he has a fear of the Lord. Always a fear of the Lord. Everything was happening beneath the Lord. Even when he struggled and strained and was materially insecure and physically just beat down, for him, he was still respectful of the Lord. Like, even in his bad days, it must be from the Lord. But what I want to point to is the fact, it's it's the mind of the accuser, okay? Because the accuser is not dumb. The accuser knows the wisdom of man better than man knows the wisdom of man. The accuser produces it and publishes it. So the accuser knows that materialism is classically the place that people who believe they're righteous are confused because they have established for themselves a hedge around them that has created a false reality. They are not really secure except at the good graces of the Holy Father for he could simply touch and it would end. This is what the the enemy says. This was Satan. Satan points to the security and says, this is pseudo-security, therefore it is pseudo-righteousness. With the fear of God, I think it's good to see our material security as a figurative idea for a greater spiritual reality. Okay, so the, the fractional physical security that you, you, you get to enjoy and experience in your life, if you're going to hold that rightly, you should hold it figuratively. You should say, I am grateful that I can put a roof over my head, but I know that God's roof is a greater roof. Right? I'm grateful that I can buy health insurance, but I know where my health comes from. The insurance of God is all the assurance I need. That When we can take these, tri- they're, they're so. I'm lying to you when I say they're trivial, but they are. I mean, they're not trivial to me. If I could make them trivial, I would make God big. But when I allow them to be big, God becomes small. And that's what we do with security, is we make these things big in our life because we do not have an honest fear of the Lord. We do not kind of wince at the sun knowing that everything good comes from him that all of life is filled by. And so we latch on to these railings of security. Now, there's a very practical difference. You could have the fear of the Lord and do everything you're doing the same, okay? Or you would, might do something different. I am not judging you. I'm not, I have no... I'm not even trying to tweak anyone. I'm just trying to say, is the fear of God in your personal question of security? That's all I'm asking. I will say this. This is a doctrine I hold and I believe is true that there is no aspect of the kingdom of God that is unreachable to the poor. God sees the poor. Which means if there's any meaningful security in your life that is unaffordable to the poor, I would question the meaning of it. I would say, maybe you're trusting in that too much. You know, almost the entire world doesn't have health insurance or life insurance. And yet we've been charged to bring assurance to all the world. Security can be had right now in Christ Jesus. That's what we can know. Is security can be had now, and you could. This is, you. This is how it starts to get out of balance. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, then the phantom of future insecurity, the threat of tomorrow, can suck all of your household away. I mean, I, I understand having a safety net. How thick does the net need to be? Really. I understand you say for a rainy day, some people could live under water. I mean, do you see? When is enough enough? If you just apply the wisdom of the world with no fear of God, when do you ever get secure? The very principles that safety net, savings, reserve, these things. The very principles, which we we have in a firm, okay? Uh, uh, We're trying to place them beneath the fear of the Lord. I'm saying those very things, which can be an agent for health, an agent for calm, right? An agent for worship. Lord, thank you that you allow us to do this. Thank you that you allow us to have health insurance so that if a kid has a broken arm, it doesn't cause financial stress to us. Like, if it's done in the light of God, it's a good thing. Those very things can be detrimental acts of idolatry. Same thing to the eyes of men. Different things are happening in the soul. That's the first thing. And you see it here. You see it here in the parable. What do I do with all of this? He says to himself. I know what I'll do. I'll buy my security. That's what he purposes. He purposes the whole fortune for his future. Okay, that's the first one. Here's the second one. The second thing that money today and tomorrow relate with. Money buys the opportunity to rest. Money affords us the opportunity to at last rest from our work. To retire. We work to retire. And I get that, okay? And I certainly affirm not being a slave to one's employer. God did not ordain DuPont or Bank of America or the U.S. government or your school system. So get out from under them and God bless you, right? That, I all, we all can also affirm the basic virtue of delayed gratification, someone who can, who can hold money for a future that we talked about. That is a basic discipline that we can observe. And I should say we can observe many beautiful things that happen in retirement. Opportunity to spend time with children and grandchildren and to make friends and to serve. To serve in a free capacity, not a, not a slavish capacity, but to serve in the way that you would choose and feel led to serve. I mean, so if you're free from an employer, then you're free to do what you ought to do. That's great. You're free to pursue dreams, good dreams that have been in you, but that you've staved off patiently. I, we can affirm all of that. The Levites in the Old Testament—they were—they would enter the service at 25, and they were out at 50. You could not serve as a priest in the temple beyond 50. Part of the reason was the the method of retirement kept the Levites were being organically born, and it kept things moving, right? Rather than people just aging and suffocating the growth, right? It Kept the vision fresh, or I don't know what, what you're going to call it, just that upward mobility through the, through the years. It preserved for that, but it also said it took the person who was 50, it took him outside the temple and said, you can still help and assist in the work outside the temple. You're just out, you're out of the, the internal business. So your life's not a zero. You're not purposeless. You just moved over. That's the way the Bible described it. My question is, how is the fear of God in this? How is the fear of God in your pursuit towards rest? Hebrews has this uh, this argument in the third and fourth chapter about pursuing the rest of God. Pursuing the rest of God. And the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is you cannot find the rest of God now. It is not to be found now. You you strive. The fourth chapter says, therefore, let us strive to enter into the rest of God. You hear the irony in that? Let us labor hard to get to the rest of God. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the rest of God is not in tomorrow, but the morrow on the other side of life. That morrow. That's, that should be our fixation, is to slave and strive for the Lord and the kingdom all the way up until the morrow that he takes us. Now, can that coincide with earthly retirement? Absolutely, and it's modeled beautifully in this church by many people. People who are retired from their employer and striving for their God. That's being done in the fear of the Lord. We could could view, a a right way of thinking about it is, is that retirement is a figurative notion, just like, earlier security. Retirement is a figurative notion of the rest to come. Retirement is not time for you. I mean, these these would be the places to be, you know, hold your own personal inquisition. Is it me time you're waiting up, you're saving up for Is it primarily leisure? I mean, I would say self-indulgence. You obviously say no to that because you know that's a bad phrase. Let me find a good phrase that says the same thing that you might admit. Is our conception of retirement essentially based upon we've worked and now we rest? And I would say, like, I... At some level, I can understand you pushing the employer behind. At another level, watch out. Because you strive until you enter into the rest of God. God has purpose for you now. Ruth White, she's uh, our oldest member. She's 100. She's housebound. She's no longer able to come to church. But for many years, she volunteered here well into her 90s, until about 95, she burned all the CDs of the sermons. Right, so she'd sit over in that whole mighty command center. wasn't as mighty back then, you know. But and she would burn CDs. It would put such a grin on your face to see a 94-year-old woman come in with a little cart and wheel these CDs into this room, and burn them. She, I, that's striving for the Lord. Be wearied of entitled pleasure, of a heart full of leisure. Because God made us to work, and we work, and we work, and we work until the day he takes us. We work for him. You see that here in this parable. What should I do? Ah, he says, "I now that I'm secure in my future, I can kick back, relax, and be merry. He says, I can lean back, eat, drink, and be merry. To which the Lord says, fool. The third and final idea <clears throat> is that a uh, uh, life devoted to accumulation now, okay, now for tomorrow has the tendency of having us miss today. Let me say that again. That when we devote, when we have a large of our, part of our life devoted to the accumulation of money now, for the purpose of saving up for tomorrow, we have a tendency of missing the value of today. You know, today is as valuable and as priceless as tomorrow is. There's no new set of days. There's no new kind of days coming. It's the same thing. You see it here in the 12th chapter, the, the farmer, the master, has no sense of purpose for Today. When someone doesn't have the fear of the Lord in them, the natural inclination is going to be if I end up with excess resources today, it must be for tomorrow. Save it. It's like the child who's unexcited, who's an adolescent, and has become dulled, life today not that good, so I'll save it for tomorrow. In in the flat world, what do you do with excess money? You save it. Because you're the center of your universe and it's wise. That's one thing to do. You know there's another thing to do with money, and it's in the fear of the Lord you say, dear God, how did this happen? He doesn't deserve this harvest. It says the land of a certain uh, man bore great fruit, produced plentifully. He was surprised. He didn't have the storehouses to house it. It's not like he worked hard for all of this. He is a he got a bonus is what he did. He got a huge bonus. Or a windfall tax credit is what happened. He was unprepared for, and he reasons to himself, what should I do? And of course, if you're the center of the universe, and you don't have need for it now, you save it for tomorrow, so you can eat, drink, and be merry. How might it have been different had he realized who the giver is? What if he had said, Dear Lord, I am now fearful because you've laid a new responsibility on me. Like, I had, I had my portfolio of stewardship. I thought I understood it. And now you've brought this new number into my life, this new thing. And Lord, how do I steward this? What am I supposed to do? If he had the fear of the Lord, would you, would, would you possibly begin to think, is there something now that I ought to be able to do? The idea that maybe God is using you as a conduit. Maybe you're not the recipient, you're the conduit. After all, do you remember the parable of the master who entrusted talents to his servants while he was gone? Is it possible beneath the fear of the Lord that when the Lord brings excess into our life now, that there may be a need now outside of our personal experience, to which he's calling us. I think we work so hard, right? We're in a room of hard workers. We work so hard, we put our head down and we go. And when we put our head down, we miss the value. We can. We have a tendency of missing the value of today and what God is doing today. And while he's working today, the, the kingdom is just passing over us as we're kind of barreling through. Work. Work, work. And so we come out with excess and we go, well, and we push it to tomorrow. And what if we could just look up and see what he's doing today? I know that's pointy. Take it. Have grace. I'll close with this. I never quite know uh, as far as how much personal finance do, we, do you share as a pastor, but I will say this. This was got great relief. My wife and I this passage, four years ago, Chris Millesnick was teaching it in Sunday school class. I had a Sunday off. I went to Sunday school. This, we opened the Bible. This was read, and boom, my life changed. My life just changed. I, I read this, and I thought, uh, and I, f- I immediately overreacted, is what happened. Oh, I don't need to retire. Just work forever. You know, you kind of make the quick judgment, right? And then, but as it settled down, and my wife and I. We, uh, we ended up going to our, I call him my my lack of wealth manager. <laughs> and I, we said to him, you know all the little pieces of paper where you have like retirement on the top? We said, we want to change the titles of the top of the page. We want to call it Kingdom Fund. It's our Kingdom Fund. And it gives me great joy. Because I said, I want you to know that if my wife and I ever come in and we need to say, we just had to take it all out. That we're not being irresponsible. I want to repurpose for my manager what this money is because it is not for tomorrow. It's for God and he may use it today. There's things that are valuable today. There's things with our own family, opportunities to take trips and have experiences that maybe don't make sound sense in light of tomorrow, but they seem to make sense to us in light of the fear of God. And that is the beginning of wisdom. And so I want to encourage you. I, 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 I am not trying to tweak anyone. I'm not judging anyone. I'm just encouraging you to say the wisdom of the world has its limit. And it is of, not of enduring value unless it's adjoined with the fear of God. How are you holding today and tomorrow in your hand? Let me pray. Lord, We're on the path to generosity. That's what you would bring us, Lord. You would have your children be generous because of our security in you, because our rest is in you, because today and tomorrow are in you. Lord, I pray that you would raise up the poor among us, esteem them high, Lord. Let them know that the essence and the riches of your kingdom. Don't have a price tag, that they could sell their paltry sum and gain the kingdom quickly. Lord, I pray that the rich among us would be uh, reminded of the figurative nature of their possessions, that they have a great metaphor in their bank account, a great opportunity to tell the right kind of parable. Father, encourage us there, Lord, I pray.